Hey, it's Jeff. In the following conversation with singer and health coach Sheena Grob, we get into some really deep material that I believe is fundamental to the human experience. Both the question of when a physical ailment may be a response to a traumatic event, particularly when the emotions related to it were repressed, and the equally as important questions around the personal and subjective nature of trauma. Sheena bravely shares a very personal story about something that occurred in her life at the age of 14. And while it may not fit into the typical categories of trauma, it clearly was for her. Sharing this is part of her rebraving journey, a journey I believe that's essential, one way or another for most of us. So let me tell you a little bit about Sheena before our dialogue begins. Sheena Grob is a Canadian health and life coach, speaker, and singer-songwriter who has touched the lives of thousands around the world with her music, message, and transformational coaching, all in service of helping others overcome adversity and claim their best life. Her 2015 TEDx talk titled, Our Health and Lives Are Incredibly Fragile, I found this out at 16 sparked the beginning of Sheena sharing her personal story of overcoming multiple sclerosis and using her most difficult life moments as an invitation to soften, open, and discover a wealth of spiritual and emotional treasures within. From the outpouring of inquiries from others who resonated with her story, Sheena's journey as a coach began. Implementing her process called Grace, How to Turn Your Biggest Challenge into Your Greatest Ally, Sheena guides her clients on a journey towards feeling more authentic, connected, and alive, no matter what their circumstances may be. For over 15 years, she's also been helping audiences all over Canada, the U.S., and the U.K. connect with their emotions through music. Her debut album titled Safe, Guarded Space, I love that title, garnered her a Western Canadian Music Award nomination. She currently lives in Winnipeg, Manitoba, with her loving husband and son. The whole topic of trauma fascinates me. It's a wonderful thing that we're beginning to normalize the conversation about it and to create a safer cultural container for people to heal from it. I really believe, though, that one of the next steps is for us to really understand that trauma is primarily a subjective experience. That is, that we have to expand beyond our culturally acceptable idea of what a traumatic event is and really understand that anything can be trauma, depending on how the person who experiences an event is internally organized. Let me read a quote from my upcoming book, Humanifestations, on Trauma, Truth, and Transformation. That speaks to this issue. Quote, if someone says that they were traumatized, they were traumatized. It's that simple. Trauma is a subjective experience. It makes no difference if you can relate to their experience or if it fits into culturally approved trauma categories. What matters is that the person identified their experience as a trauma. That's all we need to know. If we can move our compassion needle in this direction, we will truly change the world, close quote. So before we begin, here's just a bit from Sheena's song, Get Out Alive, from her second album, Glow. Get Out Alive was a very significant song for her in relation to her journey living with MS. The song encompasses a moment of awakening, realizing that she had lived most of her life unconsciously. It's a song about choosing personal integrity, despite difficult decisions, and emotional battles attached. And without question, it's a song about resilience. After our talk, you'll have a chance to hear an excerpt from her as-yet-unreleased song, Half Away, which she wrote with Nashville multi-platinum producer David Kamolsky. Half Away will be and is a taste of the music to come on her fourth album. Many people living with MS face challenging moments of having to contemplate the possibility of not fulfilling their dreams, only living halfway due to these debilitating symptoms. 
for Sheena, this concept drew even more parallels when thinking about how many people with autoimmune conditions struggle to acknowledge and express their emotions fully, as was the case for her before she learned how to. So without further ado, here's Sheena. Outside Winnipeg in Manitoba, I'm I'm actually in Winnipeg right okay. now. Okay, mm-hmm. got it. You just had a little one. How old's the little one now? Neo is eight and a half months right oh, wow. now. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to uh, I wanted to connect with you because I had some memory of your journey with MS and was always very um, curious about. And I think moved by your ability to maneuver through that in a way that wasn't oppressive and not to say that whatever's worked for you would work for anyone else. But I, but I do think it's, it's a victory story. Um, and I think it's a victory story worth sharing for those who may resonate and who might benefit from it. Thank you. And I, you know, I, we met uh, around 2014, I think I was finishing the writing of an uncommon bond. That's what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that, uh, around that time. And you were swinging through Toronto area doing, uh, concerts, um, in-house concerts. And we, we became friends and you shared some of your experience with MS and, and I don't know if it was on that trip or a subsequent trip where you it returned. You had a bit of a return of the MS. Was that, that was the second time we it met? It was the second time, yeah. Can, you can talk a bit about that if you want to. And mm-hmm. So I thought just, you know, tell us, your, tell us your story of how old you were when you found out that you had, when you had symptoms of MS and, and what the journey's been like to this point. How old are you now? 
I'm 38. I'm about to be 39 in another couple of weeks. So fantastic. Yeah. Happy mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. So take it away. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you so much for, for having me and, and just sitting here with you right now and hearing the sound of your voice is just so calming. It's uh, such a wonderful place to enter into this story, a very tender story for me um, that I feel very drawn to sharing at this point in my life. Um, I was 16 when I was diagnosed and it was a very challenging moment to receive that information at a very young, you know, promising time in life. But I distinctly remember sort of taking it in and putting it in the back of my mind or just really trying to use my positivity to ride through that at the time. That was really the only solid skill or tool I had at 16, which was positive, a positive attitude. I think it did carry me through um, the experience to some degree. I had a great support system around me. I had great friends. Went on the medication right away through the MS clinic and, um, you know, started on a very traditional journey with my treatment. What were the initiating symptoms, just so we know? Well, I was running track at the time and I remember sort of stumbling quite a bit as I was, you know, trying to do some of my long distance running and sort of feeling like I was falling into potholes that weren't there. And I felt that was really strange. And I I thought maybe I'd pinched a nerve in my back. I was also, I remember getting in the shower and noticing that there was like one side of my body was feeling hot water and the other side was feeling cold water. And I knew that that was not supposed to happen. So there was this a rising in my body that was happening that I knew, you know, I didn't panic initially, but I did treat it, you know, fairly seriously. I went to a doctor. She treated it seriously and sent me to a specialist. And, you know, we were getting answers fairly quickly, but they determined that I had multiple sclerosis after, you know, seeing a number of, I think I had over a dozen, maybe 20 lesions on my brain that they found in my MRI scan. Yeah, it all happened really fast. And I and I know that's not everyone's experience when they're trying to find a diagnosis. I always felt like, okay, well, if this is what I'm dealing with, at least I'm, you know, getting a clear answer. So that was one thing I was trying to stay positive about and was put on um, at the time it was Avonex. So it was a, a weekly injection I was giving myself. So needles were something I wasn't really into. And <laughs> I had to kind of overcome that challenge. But you know, just tried to anchor into some kind of bravery story that I was being courageous and, you know, I was going to get through this and it was going to shape me into an even stronger person. You know, so many different storylines in my own mind at the time were helping me through it, which was, I think, a positive thing. And the symptoms went away fairly soon um, after they started. Um, I didn't have a reoccurrence until around 21 or 22, I think 21. I lost um, partial vision in one of my eyes. And so it was looking like I, I would look through a screen door where 70% of the holes are filled in. That's kind of how I was describing it. It was very like pixelated almost. And alarming and and very scary for sure. But I still wasn't panicking. Like I was still moving forward with my life um, like I always had and trying to stay optimistic and really trying not to, you know, overemphasize any any of the challenge. I just really wanted to stay positive. That was really the, the mantra in my mind. And then um, I think about a year later, shortly after I was finishing my teaching teaching practicum in university. Yes, yes. It was kind of a stressful time. I was um, doing a thousand different things. I was always involved in different activities, working really hard. And um, I woke up one morning and I, I couldn't like use my pencil. I couldn't. I couldn't hold a teacup. I couldn't. I, I couldn't teach my classes that morning. And that was a whole new level of like, wow, like just forcing myself through this experience isn't working anymore. I had to get, you know, my supervisors involved and and different people had to help help me through graduating, which was such a shock to me because I was at the top of my class and I had A pluses all through university and to need help in that way was just devastating for me. It just meant something totally different in that moment. And so 
what ended up happening, and I, I mentioned this in my TED talk a little bit, which is, you know, making reference to the, the doctor who ended up um, inviting me into, I had a, a good friend at the time who suggested him and helped me connect to this doctor, Dr. Doug Deterrent. And, you know, at the time I was thinking, he, he's a psychologist and I'm, I'm thinking like, man, I'm, this is a physical issue. Like I need a doctor. I need, I need somebody to help me with my physical body. My, my mind is great. My heart is great. I'm a cheery person. I don't need to talk to anybody is sort of my approach, right? Little did I know it was the beginning of the most wonderful journey into my heart and soul, my inner experience that I, I couldn't have imagined at the time. Beautiful. Yeah, I guess for me, what was so powerful about that moment in particular was that, and this is what I don't share in the TED Talk, because this is sort of, I don't pretend to, you know, be a physician that understands the exact mechanisms of what was going on with my illness at the time. But I, I do know without a shadow of a doubt that processing a certain challenge at the time was so relieving on my emotional system, on my body, it was so relieving to process something I'd been carrying for, at the time it would have been 10 years, maybe maybe 12 years, that within 24 hours, I had the feeling in back in my arm and my, my symptoms were gone. And I was just like, what is this? <laughs> so, that, so you're talking about a specific event that you processed that was particularly traumatic. Yeah, I didn't even understand. And this is the interesting thing that, you know, now at this point in my life, I, I do work with people who are facing an autoimmune condition or having certain challenges they can't explain. And I sit with them to check out, well, what might be going on emotionally for you? And, you know, let's just see what's there. Like, let's see if we can create a safe space for you to check it out. Like, let's why don't we try, right? Why don't we just see? At the very least, this could be a, a very heartwarming experience for you where you can get some peace around something that's maybe been challenging for you for years. That's, that's the approach I take. But for me, it was like the moment I walked into his office and sat down with him, and, and I know my friend suspected that I needed to go to him talk about having a mess. And that's the thing. Like, Oh, I have MS. I need help processing that reality. That's not what I needed to talk about. <laughs> That's not what I needed to talk about. Actually, when I was diagnosed with MS, in the back of my mind, one of the first things I remember feeling was almost a sense of relief. Like, oh, okay, now I can slow down now or, or now this is my turn. This is my turn to experience something challenging. I've had so many blessings. This is my thing to, to bear or whatever the rationalization was in my mind. And, and at that time, did you have any sense, even intuitive sense that there was a connection between the diagnosis and these originating experiences or not at all? No, no. At the time, I, I didn't know enough at, at 16. Like I, I hadn't read your book yet, Jeff. <laughs> I didn't. I, I hadn't been. I did not put you. I did not put you up to that. I, I just know. It's important to note that <laughs> that was unexpected. No, no. You, you, like side note. Yeah, I mean, it's just incredible that the amazing teachers and mentors and writers and and now friends, you know, that have supported uh, my learning over the years. But at sixteen, no, I, I didn't. I hadn't yet started on that kind of. Um, inquisitive journey about my inner world. The only um, evidence to me that I had that world was that I was writing these beautiful songs that I didn't know where they were coming from. So I'd been writing music since I was 10. And some of the lyrics that were coming out of me at 10 years old, I didn't even know the meaning of half the words. I was just expressing what I thought sounded beautiful. And I look back on the words now as a you know 30-something-year-old woman and I go, was I talking to my future self in these songs? Like it was very profound. And I think that's very common for young people to express certain understandings even before they intellectually get them. Does that make sense? Um, sure does. So I 
you know, as I'm entering into, I'll, I'll take us back to the moment where I, I begin working with this doctor who specializes in emotional processing, which I didn't even know what that was. But I sat down with him and here's a practitioner who's been meditating for 40 years as well. He's got a very powerful presence and um, an essence about him that just my my soul just felt like I was entering into some kind of moment in time where everything just stopped. And I sat with him and all of a sudden things began to come out of my my knowing, my soul, my heart, whatever you might call it, that I just knew I needed to lay them down. I knew I, knew I needed to unburden myself. And at the time, I didn't consciously know, like, this is, this is connected to MS. This is, you know, what's going to liberate me. It just, I knew sitting in the presence of, of this, you know, beautiful helper in the space that this was where I had to go. And so I just trusted that. Beautiful. You said the symptoms dissipated after yeah. some period of processing. Did you continue to work with him after that? And and then what happened in relation to symptomology? Yeah, I, I ended up um, not only continuing to work with him on and off for a number of years, but I, I began to study uh, like his practice. I even wanted to understand, like, what is it you're doing here? And I I learned that there are other doctors out there. There's, you know, Dr. Gabor Mate is also someone, I don't know if you've read When the Body Says No, but there's literally parallel stories in that book that I, I discovered only recently that he'd been writing about and speaking about that were like very accurate descriptions of what I had also been through for myself and um, all the just very affirming and helping me to ground even further into my experience and helping me um, navigate what was, what was going on. But, but yeah, I, I think that for myself, I continued to, it, it changed how I interacted in relationship. It changed how I showed up in life. I was now a living, breathing, feeling person that didn't just have responses that were taught to me based on culture or, you know, parental expectations. It was like, I was now part of the world interaction. I was responding authentically. I was free. There was nothing I was hiding. There was nothing that was a barrier between me and and my authentic expression. It was I'd, I had made amends in a way, like I'd come to terms with my worst, ugliest parts of myself. And through that, there was no barrier. And I had begun to learn how to include myself in considerations. You know, what do I want to do? How do I want to be in the world? What do I want to do with my life? It wasn't just what is expected of me or, you know, what will be the hardest thing that I could do to contribute to humanity. <laughs> It's a whole different process when I was actually including my feelings. And during this phase, were you taking sort of the traditional medications that you've been diagnosed? So I was taking injections up until I want to say, I, I should know the actual date I stopped. Um, there were a number of factors like the the medication I, I wasn't feeling was a, a really good match for my body. Um, I was having, like I was sick every time I, I used them for one, I switched to Copaxone, which is a, a daily injection. And I, my body, it, it just ate away at my skin and my, my, my tissue. I was told that this would happen, but I just, every time I looked at my body and it was sort of, it looked like it was getting sicker <laughs> in my own perception I, I wasn't tuning in. I wasn't vibrating with this this treatment. It might be working for some people, and I would always encourage people to do what feels right for them. There's a number of different treatment options that people can look into. And finally, I switched to Tecfidera, which is a, an oral medication, and you're not supposed to take that when you want to have children. And so I knew you know, there's a period of time they recommend that you don't have it before having a child. And I wasn't sure when I wanted to conceive. And so I just decided. So I went off everything and I just went, you know what, I'm going to see 
how this feels. I'm going to see if diet and emotional processing and staying, um, you know, cleansed of toxins, if all of those factors can be worked with to maintain my health. And I've just, I've never felt better. Never felt better. So how many years ago, roughly was that? It's been over over 10 years. Over 10 years. Got it. Um, So that takes us into somewhere around 2011, 2012-ish, 2013. Mm -hmm. And I think you, there was one, only one more return of MS symptoms. Am I right after that? Yeah. And the correlation for me um, was an emotional, an emotional one. So I tracked, you know, anytime I should, I should clarify I'm very tuned into my body. So I am very sensitive to what's going on when. And I feel as though I've learned to listen so specifically to my body that it doesn't have to get quite as loud, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Like my symptoms haven't been as loud as they were when I was 16 and 21 and 22, because I can tell if I'm run down or if something is if I am experiencing stress that I have, I'm having a hard time working through, if it's a particularly challenging time for whatever reason, I really listen and I am so gentle with myself and I'm so caring in those moments that my body just, it doesn't have to go there the whole way, if that makes any sense. <laughs> and you've, you've made lifestyle choices that allow for that possibility. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I do work from home and I, you know, I choose when I want to get on stage to speak and to sing and to do different things, um, which I love. That's the absolute love of my life, but it's also very stressful in a, a different kind of way. It's a lot of energy. I don't even call it stress as much as just energy coming from crowds and and that kind of thing. So, so in 2014, uh, you had mentioned to me before we got on, there was the a return to some extent. Yeah. Was it a um, a very serious return symptomatically, or it was just sort of the beginnings of it, and then you were able to yeah. somehow contain it? That's a very good way to to put it. Um, it could have been serious for me if I had let it, if I had not taken the time that I did to check in, be very present to myself, do you know all of the healing. Uh, work that I had been practicing up to that point, and it it, it nipped it right away. But I was playing a show over the course of um, a two or three day period, and I, I was experiencing numbness in my left hand. But it wasn't strong enough that I couldn't play my instrument. So that's maybe an indication like it, I could still play, I could still do what I was there to do, but I treated it seriously for sure. And so what, whatever you did on a process-centered level was literally enough for the physical symptomology to dissipate. Yep. Yeah, I oh, continued wow. on and, and it was, uh, yeah, it was fine. It was fine. I feel as though at this point in my journey with it that, and especially as I learn to work with others, like I've been now practicing this way of, listening to my body and working with my body since I was, yeah, 20, 23. And so we're going on maybe 15 years here, 15, 16 years. And, um, and I, I think that there are things that I do automatically now that, that, you know, have to be taught to, to someone who doesn't know how to work with that part of their body. So I, I do, I, I don't take for granted all of that training and all of that skill building. Like it's very intuitive for me at this point and it's very natural, but, but it can be taught and it just takes time. But I see it as a, I see it as a lifelong learning journey because like, like finding the right diet for your body when you're dealing with illness, it's not like you're going to do everything perfectly right from the get go. <laughs> But over time, if you make the right choices for your body enough times over and over, then you're you're making progress. So it's sort of how I look at it too with the emotional end of things. And is there a way of has have you checked, for example, count of lesions? I mean, is this something that somebody would go and check regularly to see if if it's still happening physiologically, or it's not necessary mm-hmm. if there's not a lot of symptomology? 
Yeah, you know what? It, it It is something that people normally check in. I have a, another MRI scheduled for next month, actually, or this month, end of this month, maybe. Um, so I am planning to just check in to see where things are at. The last time I was had an MRI, I think there was a new lesion. This might have been a, quite a few years ago, um, but there were no symptoms. So given that my symptoms are very, they're very minimal compared to what a lot of other people experience but the number of lesions i have is actually quite high compared to a number of people i've spoken to we know we know that it's not so much the number of lesions but where they are on your on your brain that really makes the difference so when you got pregnant with neo were you concerned that just the sort of stress stress of of giving birth to being pregnant of being a mom, were going to exacerbate symptoms, or were you at a point where you felt pretty confident that it wasn't going to be a problem? Well, lucky for people with MS, this is an interesting thing to say, but it's it's one of the um, one of the the good parts about getting pregnant is that we actually hormonally and and physically have a, almost a strengthened experience when we're pregnant. It's the period of time after we give birth that's sometimes the higher risk period. So where symptoms might return is within, you know, a month or two or three after giving birth. But I, you know, I breezed through that time very well and was very lucky. I felt felt very nourished by being a mom. I had always wanted to be a mom, even though I'd had, uh, you know, neolate in life and at 38. And I guess... What feels so true for me and, and what I, you know, I checked in with myself. I'm like, is this a risky choice? Like I'm, a, I'm, they call us geriatric women at this point when we have babies after 35. And I always find that so, oh, I don't even know if hilarious or insulting or what, what it even feels like, but there's a reality to having a baby later in life that, that needs to be considered, I guess. And I had grown to really trust my body and trust my process and, and, I lean into my spiritual practices too. I, I meditate and I I sit with myself. I sit with the realities of my inner world. And I was given a lot of green lights around this birth. And I just really felt felt so so good the whole time. Really beautiful experience. You know, it's interesting when, you know, in my sort of early years on the path, you know, long before I had written Soul Shaping, my first book, I um I was really into the connection, psycho-emotional material and illness. Um, I wasn't like a, a Hay House kind of a promoter by any means. Um, I thought that was just off the charts ridiculous. Um, but I really, I thought it was just so important at a time when nobody around me, at least, was talking about the connection between repressed material you know, physiological issues and challenges to start talking about it. And, and then, you know, getting out and teaching and writing and interacting with so many people who had disease in their lives in ways that they couldn't, and therefore I had no right to assume were connected to psycho-emotional material. It's for them to say that, not for absolutely, me. Absolutely. And of course, disease happens for all kinds of different reasons, genetically and all kinds of things. And yeah. So I sort of swung away as I wrote against the new cage movement and all that kind of work that I felt it was important to sort of bring us back to earth and remind us that, you know, disease happens for all kinds of reasons and sometimes it doesn't matter why. But now I'm coming back a little to the middle. Um, and that's, I think, maybe why I wanted to talk to you about, for mm -hmm. you in particular, this experience with a psychologist of processing some experience that on some level was, if I understand you correctly, residing within you in a way that was sort of persistently toxifying. And as you went deeper into that healing journey, looking back on it, I mean, apart from the sort of the idea that you had this experience and then symptoms went away, so it would appear to be connected. So that's fine. Mm -hmm. And that's for you to say, not for me to, to say. But can you more specifically because of the inner work that you've done, really, 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 almost in a somatic sense, make a connection between those particular or that repressed trauma and the onset of MS at the age of 16. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, all I can do, Jeff, at this point is tell my story with as much honesty as I possibly can and allow the truth of our shared collective experiences to start shouting the reality (laughs) to us together because I, I really feel like I'm not alone in this and I may be you know, one of the few that's open to this possibility more than more than others, I might say, like, I, but I don't think I'm alone in this. And I think that the more people I sit down and talk to about their experience, the more I'm, I'm hearing commonalities and similarities. And so what I want to share, I guess, in this moment is the specifics of the nature of the actual traumatic experience that did activate my MS, I believe. So I'll start by saying that I had, I I think I had all the markers for it, right? So I, I live in Manitoba, where there's like a higher incidence, there was actually two or three other people within a 20 mile radius of my home that developed MS, which always made me wonder, is there something in the pesticides that's being used in these farming communities that has some kind of contamination we we know that it's not the thing that causes it because everyone would have it then but there's there's something about that fact right that there's it's it's adding something i contracted mono from my basketball team in grade nine and i remember remember it like it was yesterday because i i i got i i was the sickest i've ever been um the night of our provincials in my grade grade nine year so that was I found out after having mono and 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 being exposed to uh, that particular virus is another perfect storm sort of commonality between most people who have MS. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Okay. Yep, but the element of of stress being a part of like oh so you've had you've had you know you maybe live in a small town in Manitoba and you know it runs in your family and you've had mono but you still don't have MS. How come? In my mind, one of the, the, the things that trips the, the genetic you know, expression is stress. And I would even venture to guess a specific kind of stress. And this is where the, the nature and the difference between, you know, the difference between cancer and ALS and MS and, you know, what these different illnesses, uh, what brings about these different illnesses, why different people express different illnesses has become really interesting to me because we know with MS, it, it's an autoimmune condition where our, you know, our bodies are literally attacking themselves, right? And that was always this interesting realization for me, like I'm attacking myself. There's something that is significant about that. And I didn't want to let that go. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you with vulnerability what the situation was that I needed to talk about. So I went into Dr. Dr. Doug's office that day and, and I sat down with him, you know, and I, I remember crying just for the sheer experience of sitting down with someone to talk about myself. And that was a brand new experience. You know, I, I'm here to talk about myself like that. I, I've never taken time to talk about myself before in this way. And I just cried the, the experience that someone was willing to sit with me and be that container for me. And I was just blown open right out of the gates from that. But what what came next was sort of like a confession of something that happened when I was around 12, 13, 14, 13 probably was my age. At a school dance in uh, in grade seven, I carried so much shame about this particular incident um, that I I just knew this had to be one of the first things that I talked about. And so, what had happened? The nature of this incident was that I was just coming into being a woman. I was, you know, it was one of the first experiences of going to a dance and dancing with boys, and hormones were high. And meeting uh, our neighboring school, we um, we had a, you know, a, the, the next town over to us, Holland, Manitoba, was right next door to us, and we we were at that school dance, and. I remember feeling like so powerful 
at the time. I remember feeling like like the, the beginning of my feminine expression was emerging. And I think it might have been the first time I actually felt beautiful and wore lipstick for the first time. There was something significant about it, you know, that moment. And because I had sort of grown up a, a little bit of a, a chubby, ugly duckling, it, it felt kind of significant to feel beautiful for me. Anyway, I was put up to a dare by a group of older kids in, in the grade above me. So there was this boy at the dance who, from the other school, who I didn't know, who was a bit of a, a bully, I was told. He dated girls and dumped them and broke their hearts and was painted that way to me anyway. And me and my hero, you know, ultra feminine, she's all that kind of feeling at 14 years old or whatever it was. I heard that and I felt like I wanted to defend the women, let's say. I was put up to a dare by a group of kids to go up to him and ask him to dance and then um, make it appear like he did something to me Okay. on the dance floor. Make it appear like he did something to you. Right. Yeah. Like cause a commotion of some kind. I didn't really even know what the instruction was. I'd never even danced with a boy before. I see. Strange dare. Okay. It was a strange dare. Hmm. Yeah. You know what? I think it was even more specific. The instruction was more specific, but I, I might, it might come to me in a second as I'm telling the story. I, I go over to this boy and I'm talking to myself internally, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the, the hormones and the surge of energy is starting to build in my body. I'm starting to feel the strength, the nervousness, the, the fear, the, but I'm talking myself up in my mind and everyone's watching all these cool kids, quote unquote, are watching me. And I go over to him. I knock on his shoulder and I ask him if he'd like to dance. And he turned around and I saw a human being in his face. I didn't see a monster. I just saw a guy. He's actually kind of cute. I was surprised when he said yes. He said, yes, he would dance with me. And I was instantly torn in half in this moment. I was being put up to go and do something to this boy. And I also internally, this fragile, just beginning to blossom into a young woman and interact with boys for the first time and feeling so insecure. All of these experiences are going on internally at this moment. So um, we start dancing. And I see the, the kids kind of circling me, watching me, almost egging me on. And I can't remember what he was saying to me because everything was almost like my ears are ringing at this point. There was so much energy going through my body. And I think at one point, I could feel my, my heart racing, like I had to do something here. And one of the other kids sort of pushed his shoulder. And I knew it was my moment. And I stepped back and I slapped him hard across the face. Wow. Yeah. Like he'd been fresh. Yeah. And I immediately remember all of the energy just falling out of my body. Mm. Like I had absolutely, like I had just run a, a race. I had nothing left. And I ran to the bathroom crying my eyes out and not because I was acting, but because I was completely appalled by what I had just done. I was instantly filled with such shame. Like I had just abused somebody or I had like just assaulted somebody. And I, my brain couldn't even process what I had just done. Like I, I was not that person. That's not how I was raised. I go to the bathroom and um, my girlfriends come running after me and everyone's trying to check if I'm okay. And I can't say anything. I can't even speak. And as soon as collected myself, I can remember, Jeff, I can remember feeling myself trying to manage what was going on internally. I know now that if I had the tools that I had right now, and if I had found a safe space to talk to somebody to just confess what had just happened, it would have just poured out of me in tears. And I would have just felt that shame. I would have made it right. I would have apologized. I would have talked to my mom. You know what I mean? It'd be a healing path. It would have been a healing path for sure. Yeah. 
And instead, it got very isolating and very dark because what happened next was very interesting. Um, all of the kids in my life, all the kids that were involved and all the all my girlfriends, everyone covered for me. And because he was sort of a, a bad egg, let's say, in school, all the teachers instantly made assumptions about what had happened. They didn't even really ask. And when they did ask, I had nothing to say. I just, nothing could come out of my mouth. So first he got hit and then he got gaslit. Yeah. First he got hit. And then, and then I remember walking out of the, out of the, out of the school and they shut down the dance early because of this. So this was a significant event, not just in my own experience, but in our little small town, it was, it was a big deal. I know the teachers in their mind were like, we'll deal with this on Monday kind of thing. Everyone went home and I walked past him and he said, he looked at me and he said, oh, I guess I'm going to be the talk of the town again. And off he goes. And it, it literally shattered my heart. It literally, I almost became a little bit like I had an out of body experience at the time because I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to move through this. I had been given I had been given two dollars in in quarters from the kids who'd collect this was the bet money. I had to get the money out of my hand. I, I gave it back to somebody. I, I had to just change that story in my own heart. I had to do something different with that. So I gave it away. My mom, who was a counselor at the high school, I never breathed a word of it to her. And the next Monday at school, when the principal called us into his office, me and all my girlfriends, the truth never came out. I couldn't speak a word and everyone else covered for me because we were all sort of in on it. I always think back to it. You know, I think the teachers did kind of suspect that there had been something fishy going on. Like there was one or two kids in the class that did probably like spill it to one of the teachers. But it was never really brought to light in a proper way, in a healing way. And I actually contacted that boy um, a number of years ago and asked if I could speak with him. And we met for coffee and he let me apologize to him and say how sorry I was for that experience all those years ago. And he was so gracious to me. You know, what he said to me was so loving and you know, reminding me that we were kids and, you know, I just felt like I, I I was confessing to him something more important to my life story than he even understood because it, it really didn't affect him the way it did me. Did he remember the event? He did remember it. Yeah. But he said, he, interestingly, he said the reason he got through that was because, and he, he didn't live with his parents at the time. He lived with his grandmother, who was his primary parent. And he said, my grandmother always knew who I was and she always loved me so much that no matter how much trouble I got in at school, I had one person who loved me and, and she, she always, and he got through his childhood. Okay. You know, like he's a great guy and he survived the, the challenges. He had a challenging upbringing by the sounds of it. And so I always think back on that with just, wow. The way you, <laughs> Praises. Yeah. praises for the grandmothers. Yeah, praises for the grandmothers. Yeah, it's very true. And so for you, if I'm understanding, and you'll say a little bit more, but the internalization of, say, the guilt and mm -hmm. having to sort of tolerate behaving in a way that wasn't congruent with your self-sense becomes somehow the body attacking itself is that sort of the I, I will tell you without one word of exaggeration that I woke up every day for two years feeling a sense of extreme panic run through my body like I would literally feel waves of shame every morning I would think about it every morning for two years wow and then eventually I stopped thinking about it, even though we were now going to the same school. And every time I saw him in the hall, I'd think about it. And it was just, it stayed with me. It stayed with me. And I, I can just remember this absolutely gross feeling in my body that felt like, and to me, it just, it pointed to the fact, Jeff, that, you know, if there is a stress component, I couldn't imagine a more tangible experience of stress than that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even though he was, 
the victimized. I mean, I think you were too, but I think he was obviously victimized. victimized, But it sounds like you also had even perhaps more than him, some form of PTSD as a result of that experience. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I'm just sad that I, I don't think I had anyone to talk to, even though I had my mom, I didn't know I, I could talk about that situation. I didn't know how to. I also look back on that now and realize that the expectations, I was the top of the class. I was the, you know, the teacher's pet, the, you know, came from a good family. My mom was a respected teacher in the school. And there was just this, like, no one could have believed it. I would have had to fall from such grace if I had admitted. This is the story, I I think, that stopped me from acting in my highest intention and my highest integrity. I mean, now in my life, I wouldn't even wait a second. I'd probably blab like my failure (laughs) so far and wide. If it meant that the truth could set us all free, I would, I would just be living in the truth. Right. That was just, that's what I, that's what had to teach me that lesson in a hard way. But two years after that situation is when I was diagnosed. And two, two years after that was a feeling of relief when I got diagnosed, like I was finally getting what I deserved. Got it. I mean, you know, for me, there's, I mean, there's so many takeaways from this story. Yeah, I know. It's profound. Mm -hmm. But I think one of them for me is that something that I've learned recently in my own experience that what is traumatic for one person isn't for another. And we can't judge um, trauma as a subjective experience. So what you did for somebody else may have been something that didn't impact them going forward very much at all. But for you, because of the way you were internally organized, it was a hugely significant event, intolerable and incapable of being integrated into your sense of who you were and had to be. I mean, I can see the overwhelm of that, that would have been inside of your psyche at that stage. And also just this, the importance I mean, so many people now are doing somatic psych, which, you know, psychology practices, which I love. But really what we need to learn is that we need sort of chambers in every household where there's space for it, foam cubes and breathing stools like in bioenergetics and whatever it takes to be able to have permission to go into a space and have the tools that you need to keep clearing the emotional debris so that it doesn't accumulate and congeal into illness, physical yeah. illness, or into violence, or into all kinds of, yeah. you know, confusion on your path and yeah. addictive practices. And yeah. because I think once an organism, a human organism, reaches a stage where they can't tolerate what they're carrying, that's when the trouble really starts. I agree. I agree. The trouble really starts. Yeah. yeah. Great. So going forward now with Neo. I mean, it feels like you've pioneered something quite extraordinary within your own process. Again, we're not saying this would work for everybody, but it, I think there's there are really meaningful takeaways from your story. Um, where does Sheena Grob pioneering this understanding of the relationship between repressed material and illness and all kinds of other things, where do you grow from here? Well, I mean, that's such a a humbling question because I I feel like from the very beginning of this journey, I've had to just trust the unfolding. Just as when I had the opportunity to do a TED Talk and that literally was gifted to me, I didn't even apply for it. I had somebody who knew my story and they were like, Sheena, this needs to be heard. I don't know how, but let's see if we can help you. And from there, people started contacting me. They heard the TED Talk and they were like, there's something about your story that's just calling to my heart. I I want to work with you or I want to talk with you or, you know, and, and it happened really organically in the beginning. My music was um, one avenue of connecting. And if if people were resonating with the music, they would, you know, tune into the music or they'd come to a concert or, you know, that kind of thing. But this was getting even more specific. This was a different calling out. Um, I wasn't just singing to people for the for the joy of singing and the importance of expressing myself. I was also going, you know, this is the song my heart had to express. I had to release these emotions. I had to get to the heart of what was going on with me internally before it triggered uh, some kind of physical symptom. And so um, 
I, I really felt like I was being guided to join the forces of people who were trying to help others get to the heart of what they're feeling and really help in that healing process. And I, I had a very, a unique approach, I guess, integrating my music and um, what became my health coaching and my, my life coaching in combination with other, other tools that I learned over the years, it began my coaching practice. And, and so it's been a very humbling journey where I keep trusting, you know, that the right people are finding me based on what I'm putting out my story or my music, or they get a recommendation from a friend or, you know, they've just heard me somewhere and they just trust something inside them that they have to maybe ask this question for themselves too. There's something they know it needs to be unpacked. If that makes any sense. Makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I'm all for unpacking. Yeah. So, um, we'll open this conversation with some of the music that you're going to send me that relates to this journey and we'll close it the same way. And, and in the Mm -hmm. intro, I'll talk about what you share with me about the context for that music. Um, Mm -hmm. thank you for being on the Enrealman Hour podcast. It's, uh, it's a delight to be in your presence. Thank you, you, Jeff, so much for allowing me uh, this opportunity, this is the first time that I've gotten a chance to share this particular story publicly. Mm. I really felt the calling to do so here. I think that the details of it that I've skimmed over in the past, maybe continuing to be embarrassed about what my story was all about. I just feel like now more than ever, those those kinds of embarrassments need to be put down and the realities of our humanness need to be really squarely looked at and 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 embraced and seen for what they are and just the amount of great i named my my coaching process grace actually i i it has an acronym that, that i named grace for the reason that you know it really truly was grace that that healed me in a way because i just felt that that ugly part of me that was just you know whatever the trauma was whatever my part and how that unfolded it needed to be touched with with love and understanding and compassion. And I, if, unless I was willing to talk about it, then, you know, it just wasn't going to, to happen. So, I, I mean, I, I guess I can also say that if there's anybody that resonates with what my story was today and they're interested in, you know, sitting down together just to see if working together is, you know, feels right for them. Um, there's a, a link on my website that uh, they can just follow and and let me know they'd like to begin that journey. Great. We'll have all that in the show, show notes. Uh, the last thing I wanted to say is just having heard the story. It's funny when you know when you sort of set it up like a story you're going to tell about traumatic events. You know, I always expect it to be sexual abuse, or I mean, one of the exactly. And, it, and it's so interesting that it's it's so 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 subtle, so almost just something that could happen in any dance with a bunch of goofy kids acting stupidly, and yet it. It, it is has such a profound impact, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah. any little thing if it's yeah. not processed properly yeah. ends up becoming mountainous, mountainous. That's yeah. why giving ourselves permission, each other permission to unload before yeah. it accumulates is I think maybe will be the thing that ultimately saves the species. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you.